Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Just a quick heads up for a live event before we begin today. On Wednesday, July the 4th, I will be in Portsmouth presenting a talk on the folklore which inspired the Sherlock Holmes novel The Hound of the Baskervilles. This event is part of Holmesfest 2018 and has limited seating. For full ticketing details, please visit the podcast website and click on Folklore Shop, or use the short URL bit.ly slash beyondthehound. I hope to see some of you there. On with today's episode, which presents two speakers recorded at the flagship conference of the Folklore Society this year on the theme of rural life. The conference was held at the Museum of English Rural Life in Reading, and if you've never been and get the chance, I would highly recommend a visit. Today, we examine two aspects of work in folk narratives. First up is Rosalind Curvin. Rosalind is an independent scholar and the author of over 60 books published in 22 countries, including several bestsellers. She has an academic background in social anthropology and she's been collecting and retelling myths, legends, folk and fairy tales from around the world for over 30 years. Her books are published by the British Library, the British Museum Press, Cambridge University Press and many, many others. The stereotype of female characters in folk tales is of passive princesses and malevolent witches. However, an analysis of British and Irish traditional narratives reveals that many of the women who appear in them are engaged in either artisanal work or service provision in return for payment. Moreover, their exclusively female work is often intrinsic to the plot. Rosalind's talk examines the broad range of female occupations portrayed in these stories, then takes a deeper look at three case studies, the spinner needing supernatural help to escape her endless drudgery, the maidservant whose employment far from the safety of home and family makes her vulnerable to dangerous adventures, and the midwife whose specialist knowledge of the mysterious birth process may lead to disturbing interactions with the fairy people. Here's Rosalind's talk. Spinners, Servants and Midwives. Women at Work in British and Irish Folk Narratives. Right, I'm going to talk about folk tales. And if you share my interest in them, you might well be aware of the feminist critique that folk tales always feature women in passive and or negative roles. The argument goes that most young female folktale characters are helpless princesses, whilst older women are usually depicted as ugly and malevolent old witches. But how true is this? I've been examining stories from the oldest sources for over 30 years, and one of the most important things I've learnt is that you can't always believe the received wisdom that other people tell you about them. I've got thousands of stories on file from all over the world. Amongst these are over 350 folk tales from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And I decided to analyse these to find out whether the stereotypes of princesses and witches actually hold true. Now, it's important to note that most folk tales don't actually say what kind of people their characters are, and they almost never have personal names. 
So female characters are most commonly called simply a woman or a girl. In exactly the same way, male characters are usually described as a man, a boy, a lad, or by the generic name of Jack. But of those folktale women who are described, here are some very simple statistics. In just over 7% of the British and Irish folktales I looked at, so not very many, the female characters are passive princesses. And in even less, 6.5%, the female characters are malevolent witches. Now this compares with just over 10% of the stories that actually feature women who work. And my de definition of work is providing either goods or services in return for payment. So, working women are 35% more common in these stories of princesses and 44% more common than witches. Yes, a female character in a British or Irish folktale is considerably more likely to be a paid worker than either a helpless princess or a witch. So that stood the stereotype on its head. But enough of boring statistics. Let's explore what kinds of work these folktale women actually do to earn their daily crusts. Women in the stories I looked at included a milkmaid, an employed housekeeper, a weaver, a cowherd, a wet nurse, a baker, a knitter, and even, giving a more modern feel, a postwoman. Those were all one-offs, but there were several nannies and several so-called wise women who presumably charged in some way for giving people their good advice. However, three types of working women are much more common in these tales, and I'm going to look at them in more detail. They are spinners of wool and flax, servants of various kinds, and the oldest profession of all. No, I'm not talking about what you think. There aren't any prostitutes in British or Irish folk tales. The oldest profession is, of course, what the human race depends upon, the midwives. Let's start off by spinning a yarn about spinners. Most folk tales are vaguely set in the so-called olden days, which we generally vaguely imagine to mean the Middle Ages. During this long era, the most important industry in this country was textiles, and until the Industrial Revolution, textile production depended on a nationwide team of women hand-spinning wool and flax at home either with a simple hand spindle or, more efficiently, with a spinning wheel. <coughs> Historians say that for hundreds of years, spinning was the main way in which a woman could earn her own independent income. Now, just like spinning, sorry, just like housework, when it came to spinning, a woman's work was never done. It didn't require any great skill. Once you had the knack, it was simply a question of keeping on and on at it. And just like housework, it didn't have a satisfying end product, apart from payment, of course. Spinning just produced a rough raw material that was then passed on to others to weave and sew. And virtually all women and girls in the olden days knew this endless drudgery. So it's not surprising that storytellers commonly used it in their tales, lightening the load with a good dollop of humour and fantasy.
Spinning really was endless drudgery. Textile historians have calculated that a good spinner would have to produce five and a half miles, that's nine kilometers of yarn, to weave into a very simple dress. And that would have taken no less than 45 hours spent spinning non-stop. It's generally reckoned that it would take a whole day to spin two skeins of flax into linen thread. Now, you need to remember that, two skeins in, in a day maximum, as we examine a fun English folktale. It's called Tom Tit Tot, and some of you might recognize it as being quite similar to the German Rumpelstiltskin. This is how it opens, gradually working up to the spinning theme. There was once a foolish woman who had a foolish daughter. One day, this woman baked five apple pies and put them on a shelf to cool. While she was away outside, her daughter sneaked in and stole a taste of one. Mmm. It was so good that she finished off the whole pie, and then another, and yet another, until soon she gobbled down all five. As she was licking the crumbs off her fingers, her mother came home and fell into a rage. She slapped her daughter hard on both cheeks and whacked her backside with a broom. Then the woman went stomping out into the street, yelling at the top of her voice, Oh Lord, what a glutton I've got for a daughter! She's eaten five whole pies all in a single day. Well, eventually she calmed down. But when she turned round, you'll never guess what she saw before, behind her. A big black horse, adorned with bells and golden ornaments, and sitting on its back was the king. The flustered woman dropped a curtsy and apologised humbly, but the king waved her apology away and said, Good woman, I heard you saying something about your daughter just now. It sounded very interesting but I couldn't quite catch it. Would you kindly repeat it? There was no way that woman was going to tell the king the disgusting truth about her daughter's greed. So she thought quickly and said, um, uh, yes, um, well, I was just saying, your majesty, what a great spinner I have for a daughter. That's five whole skeins of flax that she spun in a single day. Good heavens, replied the king. Five skeins in one day? I've never heard of such productivity in all my life. She must be a girl in a million. Bring her out, woman. I want to meet her. So the woman went to fetch her daughter, who came out giggling and blushing. The king looked her up and down and scratched his bristly beard. I've been searching for a suitable wife for some time, he said. Seems to me your girl will be just right. She seems innocent, she's a good looker, and best of all, she's clever with her hands. So I think I'll marry her. In fact, there's nothing to be gained by wasting time. We'll hold the wedding tomorrow. After that, she'll live in the royal palace as my queen. The woman and her daughter both gasped. But there's one condition, the king went on, for 11 months of the year, she can laze about 
and live a life of unadulterated luxury. However, she has to spend the twelfth month spinning five skeins of flax every single day, just like you said. And if she can't, or she won't, I'll have her executed. Now, this is an interesting scenario. Here's a king choosing his bride, not for her beauty, as you'd expect in a folk tale, but for her artisan skill and productivity. Whatever were the old storytellers thinking of? Were they being sarcastic? Oh yes, to marry a king, all you have to do is prove you're a hard worker. Ha, ha, ha. Or was it, was it a working woman's way of saying that the toil of her hands <coughs> should be far more valued than beauty? Either way, it was, of course, pure fantasy. As the story rolls on, we discover the poor girl hardly knows how to spin at all. She's never spun a single skein in her, all her life. However, since this is a folktale, there's a magic helper, an imp, waiting to come to her rescue. He does all the spinning for her, and oh joy, he doesn't even charge for his services. Of course, there's a catch. He threatens to seize her unless she can guess his name, which is Tom Tip Dot. And she's saved by a last-minute lucky chance. <coughs> now, let's move on and take a look at folk women, folktale women who work as servants. This is by far the most common folktale occupation. As with spinning, working as a kitchen maid or a general drudge doesn't require any great skill. However, it does have an important quality that the storytellers of old made good use of. To find employment as a servant of any kind means leaving the familiar safety zone of home. <coughs> it means entering a household full of strangers who might have strange rules and live by strange norms of behaviour. Some of the most curious stories of this kind involve a young woman finding herself working as a maid to a witch or a fairy man, which of course is the perfect opening for a supernatural adventure. Another interesting kind of servant folktale falls into the category of Cinderella stories. We all know the familiar Cinderella who was brought to us in the 17th century by the French author Charles Perrault. He portrays her as a helpless and totally passive young girl, confined to her own home where all her hard work is unpaid. This type of Cinderella is the star of many a mass-produced fairy tale or pantomime. However, England has its own Cinderella story, and its heroine is of a very different metal. The key plot of it is as follows. A nobleman unjustly accused his daughter of insulting him and threw her out. Well, this noble girl did not dismay. She went to the riverside, cut some of the big rushes that grew there, and fashioned them into a ragged cape. Wearing this, she took herself to a grand house, went to the servants' quarters, and unashamedly begged for a job. I'm happy to do anything, she said, even just scrubbing the dishes. So they took her on to work in the kitchen. Because of her strange outfit, 
They called her Catba Rushes. Well, sometime later, the lord of the house held a ball that lasted for three days. Of course, the servants weren't invited. But when none of the others were looking, Kappa Rushes threw off her ragged disguise and went along to the ball. There, the lord's son himself danced with her, and they fell in love. But before the evening was ended, she hastily slipped away from him. The same thing happened on the second night too. But on the third night, before Kappa Rushes could get away, her lover cried, tell me who you are. If you don't, I shall surely die. And he quickly managed to grab her and slip a ring onto her finger. Just before she, she fled yet again, secretly back to the servants' quarters. After she vanished, her disappointed lover took to his bed and said he was dying. His mother ordered the kitchen to send him up to send up some special gruel to give to him. Of course, Kappa Rushes was working in the kitchen, and she persuaded the cook to let her make the gruel herself. And before it was sent up to the Lord's son, she hid the ring he has hidden inside the gruel. The Lord's son soon found the, the, the ring and recognised it, and it was traced back to the kitchen and there to Kappa Rushes. Thus, by her own efforts, her own work, Kappa Rushes won her man, and her former noble status was re-established. Unlike the usual, fairy, uh, the usual Cinderella story, there are no fairy godmothers here. Instead, we have a fiercely determined, shrewd, and proactive heroine who uses work to turn disaster into triumph. Finally, let's explore perhaps the most interesting workers of all, the midwives. Midwives have specialist medical skills that can only be acquired by working in intimacy with other women, thus gaining the experience that comes with age. They work in an enclosed space from which men are totally excluded. Like maidservants, midwives can only undertake their work by travelling away from the safety of their own homes, and this routinely involves staying in a stranger's house, perhaps for some days if the birth is long and the baby needs aftercare, again exposing them to adventure. Like wise women, midwives have a sound knowledge of herbal medicine. That's a lot of special qualities of skills and a lot of mysterious power. For these working women directly control the miracle of new life. So it's not surprising that in British and Irish stories, midwives often cross the precarious line from our everyday familiar world into the supernatural parallel world of fairies, that uncanny immortal race that is secretive, cunning and often dangerous. Now, this ability to struggle our world and the realm of fairies perhaps reflects the fact <coughs> that in olden times, real-life midwives held the only key to stop new mothers and babies from crossing a different precarious line into another parallel dark world, that of premature death. 
A very common British midwife story features an older woman who receives a midnight knock at the door. Upon opening it, she is urgently summoned by a weird little man to help his mistress. He takes her on horseback through wild country to a mountain cave, fairyland, where she finds a young woman about to give birth. The expectant mother might be one of the fairy people. Alternatively, she's a mortal girl who has been abducted or tricked into fairyland to improve the fairy race with human genes. Either way, her husband is always the fairy king. The birth is straightforward and the midwife stays on for a while to look after the new mother and baby. Now, in terms of the modern gender pay gap, folktale midwives would be the envy of most folktale working men, for their payment is usually a big bag of gold, sometimes even two. So, looking again at the quest for a more feminist perspective in folktales, I would argue that there's no need to ignore or reformulate the old stories. It's all a question of knowledge, perspective and choice. There are countless thousands of traditional tales out there all over the world. Rather than just reanalyzing the same old familiar ones over and over again and regretting their negative female stereotypes, I would urge folklorists to seek further. There have always been working women, they've always been in the majority, it's not some new phenomenon, and there are plenty of wonderful old stories about them. Rosalind's talk leads nicely into the second speaker, past guest of the Folklore Podcast, Joe Hickey-Hall, who examines the appearance of fairies in rural folk narratives. Joe is a social researcher, historian and folklorist with a long-held interest in the relationship between supernatural experience, local landscape and oral tradition. She's particularly inspired by the survival of oral law in rural communities and the cultural taboo that exists around fairy belief. Over the centuries, fairies have surfaced from time to time in the course of people's ordinary working lives, imparting a sense of magic to the mundane. Admittedly more often the instigators of mischief, fairies may choose to bestow good fortune upon the hard-working labourer, and have even provided unexpected servitude at times. The narrative highlights a close connection between working people and the land, arguably a fairy territory, a relationship that is increasingly rare in the 21st centuries. Joe explores how belief in fairies undoubtedly shaped the way in which people carried out their daily endeavours, forging customs, regulating behaviour and guarding morals. Here's Joe's talk. Wilt gears the lend of thy plough and tackle? Fairies at work. Fairy belief and folklore has weaved its way through people's ordinary working lives for centuries. These are not, of course, the fairies of Victorian and Edwardian children's storybooks, but the hidden folk of the hollow hills, the gentry, the other crowd... They can be your friend or foe, and woe betide anyone who disrespects their territory or underestimates their influence. This is, of course, folklore with a capital F. 
tales from the heyday of the 19th century that began with folklore, folklorists such as Thomas Crofton Croker and Anna, Elizabeth, Anna Eliza Bray. A time when people's lives were anchored to the lands as farmers and blacksmiths, miners and milkmaids, dependent on the local landscape for access to food, water and shelter and fertile soil. But what surprises many is that such beliefs still hold strong for people in the modern age. So the parameters of the presentation, I'm basically focusing on tales about builders, farmers and wives or housemaids, we'd call them housekeepers <coughs> in this day and age, but in the uh, old tales they're usually you know, wives. And, um, the reason for this is that these kind of working roles are still recognisable in the modern age. So we're looking sort of further back and bringing it into modern age. Um, so, I mean, there are other areas I could have looked at, you know, for instance, you know, miners or milkmaids or blacksmiths, um, even um, midwives. But I've chosen to focus on these three areas because there's some really great uh, folklore that brings us right through. Um, so the region, so Great Britain, including the British Isles and Ireland, and uh, we're looking at generally kind of 19th century up to mid-20th century folklore, and then anything after sort of about 1950 I would regard as modern folklore. For anyone who's not familiar with fairies, um, just a very, very brief uh, category list here. And of course the work that was done by Catherine Briggs has been, you know, immensely useful and uh, you know over the years. So at the top here we've got the sort of the quite known good natured helpers, uh, which are the brownies, a bit like the Robin Goodfellows, um, and Silkies come up as well. Um, down here and they are helpful and they perform tasks, uh, but they're tricksters, so you know a bit more, bit more tricky, hobgoblins, hobgoblins, etc. And at the bottom there, we've got the more sort of malevolent sprites that come up, which are known as the boggarts. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, view these tales from three different perspectives. Um, the first, I feel, is that in a lot of tales, the fairies are guarding the, uh, the natural or ancient environment. So we can see that as sort of like protection of heritage in some ways and um, so you know we can see their their uh, role sometimes as um, you know as environmental conservation um, so whether that's the fairies or the villagers themselves that are teaming up to protect uh, you know development in certain areas and warning off the threats uh, the second is um, you know pure and simple folk belief in fairies. Uh, there's almost a kind of religious reverence towards the fairies um, and a fundamental belief in them. In these tales, the humans are rewarded uh, for their respect of the fairies. And Carol Silver has, has you know done some work in this area, and there's a particularly good article called "On the Origins of Fairies." Um, she also talks about how early folklorists were more open to believing in fairies and actually in some cases sort of looking for it, the existence of them, especially if you think about people like Yeats and sort of Lady Gregory. And, uh, as folklorists, we have largely moved away from that, um, but I believe that there's more for us to learn in this area. Uh, in particular, my research, Modern Fairy Sightings, which runs as a Facebook group, uh, which was originally set up when Mark and I were looking for evidence of, mo of modern sightings in Devon for our chapter. 
um, there's a lot of reports coming in of encounters by very sensible people, and I'm interested in exploring this further. Thirdly, the power relationship between uh, the, the, you know, that come up in, in tales. Now, this has been extensively written about, um, in, in particular, uh, in Jeremy Hart's excellent Explore Fairy Traditions from uh, 2004. Um, he talks about how the tales were used, in some cases, to you know, hold up the fairy. The employer would hold up the fairy as a good example to his servants and uh, you know, to make sure that they were the hard-working um, and where fairies were malevolent and, and some sort of threat, this would be to warn servants about being dishonest or slacking, basically. So, um, but in the tales, there's also plenty of warnings to the employer, uh, because if they mistreat the fairy or their employees, you know, they'll suffer for it, because in a lot of tales, the fairies will just leave. So there's this power shift going on. So starting with builders... There are lots of examples of builders um, in the folk tales, and basically what happens is that they will return to the foundations of the working site, usually churches that are being built, it's quite popular, on the second day, only to find that all their materials and tools have been magically transported nocturnally, and, um, and then there's this kind of toing and froing between the fairies and the builders, and usually, eventually, the builders will see this as a, some divine inspiration. Either that or they're just completely exhausted and they're just not going to meet, meet them again. <laughs> and they build them where the fairies want, to, want them to the preferred location. And so um, there are you know, lots of examples of this in 19th century folklore in particular, and they read a bit like legends. So we've got St. Brillard's Bay Church in Jersey and East Chalborough in Dorset, both of which were moved to very unlikely watery locations by the fairies. And, um, but in Inkbarrow Church in Warwickshire, the uh, builders were, they, they, they wouldn't give in, and the church was in fact built where it was originally meant to be. But this made the fairies wail for days. Neither sleep, neither lie, for Inkbarrow's ting tangs hang so high, referring to the fairies' well dislike, well-known dislike of church bells. So this talks to me about sort of guardianship of the land and folk belief, Fairies protecting their interests or the interests of the land, you could say they're the same thing, they come from the land, by choosing another site. Um, so in all, these, um, in all these cases, there's a really good show of protest and sticking it to the man, which I quite like. <laughs> um, but what are the consequences of crossing fairies in this way? And we can look at some um, <laughs> more sort of modern occurrences of interventions. So um, this is in the, the Times in 2005, it was reported that Perthshire villagers had protested about the site of a modern estate that was being built. Now this estate was um, in the centre of it, on the, on the location, was an ancient standing stone. So there were lots of council meetings during which the developer was warned, do not move that rock, you'll kill the fairies. Although the councillor herself admitted publicly I do believe in fairies, but I can't be sure they live under that rock. <laughs> in the end, the estate was entirely redesigned with the curious rock at the centrepiece of, a, of an integral park. Um, I also found two modern examples um, where electrical contractors had come along by the board to you know, put in a line of, um, of electricity poles, 
And uh, the ones that were built right next to, or inside in one case, a fairy fort, uh, they returned the next day and the poles were flattened against the floor. So this at the time was put down to uh, strong winds. But interestingly, all of the other poles in the line remained straight. So again, there's chewing and throwing, putting them up, you know, uh, finding them at funny angles again. And in the end, they moved them outside the fairy fort, or further away from the fairy fort, and then they stayed erect. So moving on to farmers, um, there are, of course, lots of tales of farmers rewarding their hard-working fairies with a fine suit, um, only to find that they'll skip off and leave. And so um, these are examples of that power relationship we've discussed. And hark back to the days in particular when farms were uh, worked by labourers who lived on site, they had their lodgings there, they, were, you know, they had their, their food as well, uh, and um, they were presented with, with clothes annually as well. And um, so the following three examples are from 1911, 1940 and 1901. The first collected by Evans Ranks talks about a, a Cornish pixie who previously happily thrashed corn for his farmer, uh, but upon receiving his suit, he heads off singing, Pisky fine and pisky gay, pisky now will fly away. Equally, the East Halton Brownie was outraged when his annual linen suit was replaced by a coarse hemp one. Harden hemp, harden hemp, I will neither grind nor stamp. Had you given me linen gear, I'd have served you many a year. Thrift may go, hard luck may stay, I shall travel far away. There was also a particularly grumpy Lancashire Fenodry who lifted each item of the unwanted clothing, naming a particular illness it would provoke in the astonished farmer. So the moral of the story here is, don't be generous to your employees. These were, of course, very much from the employer's perspective. But uh, later tales from the mid to late century uh, warn farmers of crossing the ferries and are quite common. So they suggest the employer better not take their workers for granted. Um, one in 1883 tells of a Lancashire farmer who looked at the weather and wished he brought his corn in that day. So he goes to bed. The following morning, he finds all of his corn in the barn. So he's delighted with this until he turns round and sees his horse dead between uh, the shafts between the um, shafts of his plough. So he's very cross and thinks, oh, I wish that helpful fairy could be doused in the mill pond. Whereupon, later that afternoon, he finds all of his corn in the mill pond. Um, the second describes where a Sussex farmer spies on his hard-working corn-freshing fairies. And here's one exclaim, I'm sweating, Puck, are you sweating? The farmer rudely shouts, I'll make you sweat before I've done with you, before re receiving a fatal blow to the head, as the fairies run from the barn, never to be seen again. So, um, in these cases, the, the boots, you know, the... Uh, the boots on the old foot. Um, but there are cases where the fairies and farmers actually get along, they're friendly with each other and they help each other out. Two tales from 1852 and 1859 concern ploughmen who aided fairies in need. So in the first story, one ploughman finds the fairy's lost pickaxe and it's returned to the fairy. Um, and in, a, in the second, um, the ploughman fixes a broken <coughs> churn staff. Um, so both tales feature two ploughmen each. There's um, a ploughman that is helpful and respectful to the fairies, and then there's one who's just really not into it at all, or absolutely terrified. 
And in both cases, the helpful plowman is rewarded with a feast of bread, cider and cheese, and, or a, a capital pot of drink. Um, and so in the second story, the unbelieving plowman never prospers as a result of him not taking part in the feast. So these are stories of folk belief and respect for the fairies that you will be rewarded if you're kind, helpful and respectful. Almost a little bit like um, sort of Christian morality. Well, not Christian morality, but the ideas of um, sort of believing and being rewarded for it. Um, so these beliefs do still exist and are part of the modern fairies research. Uh, in an article in Folklore in 1965, Catherine Briggs um, talks about a Somerset farmer who was particularly friendly with the fair folk who threshed his corn. Um, and a similar thing happens. The wife sees the fairies working. She thinks, oh, I, I'll, I'll make them some clothes so you know, they're, they're naked bodies. So she, she makes them the clothes. And of course, the working relationship ends. The fairy leaves. And um, sometime later, though, uh, the pixie meets the farmer in a field and says, Wilt give us the lend of thy plough and tackle? That's the pack horses and brooks, so that he can move his pixie family away from these dreadful church bells. So the farmer trusts the pixie, and um, he, he takes the old pack horses off, and when they return, they are transformed into two young horses. So that's his reward for um, respecting the fair folk. I spoke to a, far, a modern farmer uh, in Galway, Pat Noon. Now you're standing on top of a, where a chieftain was buried, a Bronze Age burial ground, maybe two and a half, three thousand years old. As you see around here, those white thorn bushes, they're associated with the fairies. My father had never cleared any of those. And they are no good on land, as the modern farmer will tell you, only taking up space where you could feed an extra cow. But he would not cut them or have anything to do with them. They were belonged to the fairies and the other world, and they were left there, and I live in them there. And that's the way it should be. They were keepers of the, of the land. They kept the land sacred. So that video is very recently um, featured in the Irish Times. And um, as I say, Pat is part of my modern fairy sightings um, research. So I spoke to him, and he was telling me um, about one of his one of the neighbouring farms. So he said, "I know a farmer not too far from me. There was a huge, big fairy fort on the farm, and they became big dairy farmers, milking lots of cows, forty cows." They'd reclaimed the land with grants from the EU and they mowed the fairy fort down and ploughed over it. Disease took the cows and one by one, uh, one thing after another, now the land has been rented off to other farms and the farm is gone. I went up where the fort was on the hill. You could feel the crying of the land. So there are still many who do believe um, and respect what we might call the old ways. And while Pat used to keep his ideas to himself, because um, he does say that he sees fairies, uh, he now speaks out and he encourages other farmers to consider their actions. So moving on to uh, wives or housemaids. Um, so in the home setting, we're really awash with tales of uh, brownies helping. Um, so Jacqueline Simpson reported in Magical Folk, the, the book that we uh, also wrote in, um, she was talking about the in, in Sussex, the idea of hobgoblins was so prevalent 
that um, in the 19th century in Sussex, if a woman had been particularly competent and efficient at her housework, someone might comment, I see Master Dobbs has been helping you. So that's definitely folk belief. But it's kind of got touches of our relationship in it as well, because it's almost like suggesting that the fairy was maintaining her standards in some way. However, the next one she, she talked about, which was again 19th century Sussex, um, if house, wives or housemaids were having difficulty churning butter, they would invoke Master Dobbs in the following way, by repeating this threefold, come, butter, come, come, butter, come. Peter stands at the gate, waiting for a buttered cake. Come, buttered cup, come, butter, come. So that sounds like a really pagan-sounding invocation, and definitely folk belief. Um, William Henderson reported in Folklore in 1879 about brownies who like to hang on the empty pothook over the fire. The Scottish wag at the wall would be invited by swinging the pothook. And um, an old lady still living in Hertfordshire in 1908 still held memories of the brownie sway, which is a curve in, in the crook of the iron bar over the fire. If there was no curve, people would hang a horseshoe there as a brownie seat. Catherine Briggs talked about Marjorie Sowerby, who lived in Oxfordshire at the beginning of the 20th century, and she remembered visiting two old ladies who lived in a large house, and they would tell their intimate friends about their relationship with their silky, or brownie, who used to manage the house for them and leave them fresh flowers. So Marjorie returned after the Second World War, and um, another old acquaintance was now living there. But uh, he was disturbed by banging noises, banging the noises much like poltergeist activity, and eventually had to move. So Brownie turned to Boggart. Um, again, in <coughs> fairies. While we're searching for our book, um, Mark and I interviewed um, Elizabeth Jane Baldry, who's a harpist in Devon. She told us about her kitchen fairy. Uh, she's saying that she was busily preparing for a concert one evening and making food for her two young sons. Um, and in her hay, she discarded some <coughs> peel into the bin instead of taking it out to the compost. Uh, she said she felt really bad about this, and a few moments later, she opened the lid and she saw this very bright light sitting on the potato peelings. She said that she knew it was a fairy, even though she didn't see humanoid, humanoid form. She just had this very strong feeling. Um, and uh, so she said she watched it for a while and then got frightened and put the lid down. Um, in 1962, a vicar's wife had been staying in a church in Maldon in Devon with her husband as part of a pulpit exchange sort of situation. Um, she, they were going out for a walk and she realised while they were out that she'd forgotten to light the stove. So they came home fully expecting to have bread and cheese for dinner and finding that the dinner was bubbling away nicely on the stove. Another occasion, she went out, and while she was out, well, she left the, the oven on, but came home to find it off the heat and warming for them. But uh, not all encounters have ended so amiably. A couple in their house in the 1990s were minded by the former occupants when they moved in. The brownies provided help around the house. So this involved, they would, they would clean for them, um, they would load the washing machine, and then put the clothes in the tumble dryer. So the new occupant, Jenny, thought she was just doing all of these things unconsciously, took herself to the doctor and got prescribed tranquilizers. But then um, her husband was finding that his shed was completely tidied up and that his clothes were being hung up in the wardrobe. And so um, on one occasion, she lost her temper with this invisible helper. And after that, everything descended into chaos. 
She had soap powder all over her vegetables, taps left running, furniture knocked over. So in the end, they had to move out. So to conclude, you know, what relevance does fairy folklore hold for us today? And in the same, you know, does it does it matter in the same way as it did in the working lives of our ancestors? And if so, why? So if we if we just consider these theories again, um, in terms of the power relationship, certainly in early folklore, there's this really strong sense of the power relationship coming through the themes of the tales. And with um, you know, with with regard to that, does that theme still come up? Well, people still talk about the cleaning fairies. So if someone's not pulling their weight in the household, they might need reminding that these things aren't just done magically. Um, but if we look at the, uh, the actual themes that were going on in the tales about working injustices, well, nowadays in the work environment, uh, at least in Western society anyway, these things are openly talked about and fought against, and we've got employment laws. I do find it really interesting that in those tales, the fairies have all got voices they skip off merrily, saying a little ditty. But in modern encounters, you never ever, I've never received anyway, um, any um, encounters where fairies talk. So it seems like in those tales, the fairies often had a voice where the employees didn't. I find that interesting. Um, so it does in that way show that they performed a very useful task. Um, with folk belief, I mean, there's a huge renaissance in folk belief and, and pagan belief in Wiccan religions. We don't have exact figures for the UK, but um, so nearly 20 years ago, Ronald Hutton undertook a study, and um, he, it, which suggested that there's around 250 neo-pagans in the UK, which is uh, which was at the time similar to the national Hindu community. Um, people are talking about fairies more openly now. We might think about Pat Noon and Elizabeth Jane Baldry as peculiarities, but they really aren't. Um, there's a lot of interest in fairies. So my uh, group has about 1,000 members now, um, and people are still reporting sightings um, and goings on. So why the interest in fairy folklore again? My feeling is that if we look at when fairy folklore was originally very popular in the 19th century, this was a response to the Industrial Revolution. Areas were changing at such a fast rate, um, and the world was evolving at an incredibly fast rate. And I feel that we are going through another revolution ourselves. It's the di in the digital age, the world is changing so fast. And of course, we've got the deg degradation of the land, um, but we could also see that as a result of industrialisation you know, and or capitalism as well. And there's a turning away as a response by people in greater, greater numbers. So people are turning away from all of that towards the land. They are growing their own food where they can. They're trying to live off grid. Um, so at the same time as the return of the, these old ways, you know, following the seasons and cycles, reconnecting with the landscape, in a way that perhaps our parents had a little desire to as they pushed forward into the modern age. Uh, if you think about, um, you know, wassailing's come back in a big way and um, Beltane and sowing rituals. Uh, with regard to uh, guarding our natural landscapes, I mean, we do see a lot of that. Part of this turning away is about demonstration, about the spread of construct excessive construction, excessive farming, um, demonstrating against fracking, um, you know, the wiping out of forest land for grazing. 
Um, on a small scale, people are trying to make their gardens as environmentally attractive as possible to wildlife. And, um, you know, workshops on foraging and bushcraft have really come back fiercely. You know, you could do one every weekend in Bristol if you wanted to. So we're returning to the landscape, even if it's not through our working lives. I feel quite strongly that this is a growing planetary consciousness in this regard. <coughs> that our love and guardianship of the land is something that we share with the fairies. And we're once, once more resonating with nature and its fair folk. But it remains to be seen if fairies return with such vigour again to our working lives. My thanks to Rosalind and Joe for granting permission for their talks to be featured on the Folklore Podcast. For more information on them and their work, visit the guests page at thefolklorepodcast.com. Patreon supporters of the podcast will be able to access transcripts of these talks as soon as they can be made available. Keep an eye on our social media for announcements for this and the bonus content which will be coming out exclusively for Patreon supporters. Patrons are the lifeblood which allows the Folklore Podcast to continue. Keep listening for the end credits for details of how to join them and to help keep this podcast live. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>